0: From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. A grizzly bear mauled Barry Gilbert more than 40 years ago.
1: The bear chased me down within seconds, knocked me down, and I lost an eye.
0: Now this researcher is a grizzly advocate. He's trying to break down negative stereotypes of bears. Then, the federal government's experiment in Colorado, fracking with a nuclear bomb. What it felt like was a very slow-moving tremble. Plus, a basketball legend and former Denver Nuggets star whose career was derailed by alcohol, cocaine, and injuries has found peace and sobriety out of the limelight. And the Church of the Graveyard Saints explores the attitudes toward environment and resource extraction that shape land and communities in southwest Colorado. This is Colorado Matters on CPR News. I'm Avery Lill. He went from a traumatic encounter with a grizzly bear here in the western United States to a career researching and now advocating for the animals. Barry Gilbert studied grizzlies for decades in Yosemite and Alaska. At age 82, he's written a book about his experiences. On Tuesday, he'll talk at the Denver Museum of Nature and Science. He joined us from his home on Wolf Island in Canada. A warning, Some listeners may find his recollection of the attack disturbing. Barry, welcome to the program.
1: Oh, thanks very much, Avery. Very nice to uh, talk to you.
0: Barry, you're a fierce advocate for bear conservation. How do you think bears have been negatively typecast?
1: Well, I uh, refer to them as uh, being stereotyped as rogues. Uh, The mythology in the United States, even extending to some people that work with bears continuously, is that they're uh, unpredictable and vicious and dangerous almost in all conditions. And uh, my book tries to sort out when they are and can be dangerous, just as humans can be and dogs can be dangerous, and tells the other story about uh, how bears uh, have lived with people while going back fifteen to 20,000 years with indigenous people. And uh, I even did an analysis of the Lewis and Clark Journals uh, learn volumes of them to see how bears responded to the first settlers or explorers that came across the United States and met grizzly bears.
0: But your first interaction with the bear, it really fits directly into that negative typecasting narrative that you mentioned. You were attacked by a bear while backpacking in Yellowstone in 1977. What happened?
1: I was uh, starting a study with a graduate student, Bruce Hastings, who lives in Fort Collins now, and we were ten miles from the nearest road. I had a, a contract with the Park Service to observe uh, human bear interactions on trails, and we wanted to know what the uh, disturbance, if any, was to the bears and uh, how they responded to people. Unfortunately, uh, almost within the first week, uh, we'd climbed to a location, uh, like I say, ten miles from the nearest road, and six o'clock in the morning we started seeing bears across the valley grizzly bears, a uh, female with two cubs, and uh, a male nearby. And it was such a great distance that I suggested to my student that we uh, make a big circle around and come up on the far side of the mountain uh, on a mountain top. Well, my assumption that the bear would stay in the valley was incorrect. That bear walked up through the trees, and when I came over the back of a ridge, I basically walked right into her i tr- came over the ridge rather fast because i i knew the elk would bark if they saw me as a silhouette on the on the skyline and uh, <laughs> i basically charged a grizzly bear and i paid for it the bear uh, chased me down within seconds you know they can uh, run as fast as uh, a racehorse and it clawed its way to me and uh Knocked me down, bit my scalp off the back. I turned her over to fight it, and it dropped its mouth on my face and uh, tore the left side of my face and bones out, and I lost an eye. And then the bear left me, and my student came up behind and uh, courageously let out a big haw and stepped behind a bush, and the bear left, and I think it was the classic example of a... uh, of an accidental encounter in which I was well within the personal space of a bear and it felt threatened and defended itself. I had a incredible rescue involving smoke jumpers coming down parachutes and a helicopter lift and I went back to the uh, University of Utah Hospital for two months of uh, reconstructive surgery. Luckily, I survived that too, so I had one bit of bad uh, luck and then a whole string of good luck.
0: That is truly harrowing. The attack left permanent scars mostly on your face and head, but not your hands.
1: I had a little bite in one finger and that was about it. Theirs tend to fight each other face to face. I think they are trying to uh, lock up the uh, weapons of the other animal. Uh, if you, if a bear grabs another bear by the jaw or the back of the head, then the bear that's been grabbed can't do anything with its jaws. It's kind of like fencing, I guess. And in, in the cases with humans, they tend to go for the head where their experience is the big teeth are. Unfortunately, my teeth aren't that big.
0: But in some ways, he was treating you as another bear. So let's flash forward in time. You're sitting beside a bear in Yosemite a year later. Describe what's going on in your head. What drove you to do another research project with
1: bears? (laughs) We uh, had the drugs, a few bears, to put tags on them. And one of those involved darting a bear on the ground. Of course, they were coming in trying to get your garbage. And a 500-pound nail came in, and Bruce and I uh, had a dart gun. We darted it and then chased the bear as fast as we could because we wanted to climb the tree uh, nearby so we could look after it. And then we backed away from the tree so it wouldn't just fall out of the tree. It would come down slowly. And I found myself sitting beside a 500-pound bear. And I'll tell you, I was pouring water on it to make sure it kept cool. Because when you anesthetize bears, uh, they have trouble thermal regulating. And I had no idea what that bear was uh, going to do when it came out. But I backed off the ways. And basically, stupidity took over. I just sat there and looked after the bear I, I didn't worry too much about what was going to happen to me.
0: Even though it really but, hadn't been that long since your initial
1: accident. Yes, but, you know, I like to use the analogy if a uh, horsewoman or a horseman uh, gets kicked or falls off a horse, you don't give up riding horses. Uh, you climb back on and do it differently the next time. So, uh, curiously enough, I've I got incredible credibility about grizzly bear attacks and uh, I was the one that did everything wrong I don't know where people are coming from but I guess when you have experience on the ground and then people come up and ask me you know how can I be safe in their country and I have to start off by giving the context it takes a long while to to learn everything about bears and you don't walk up to a sea captain and say I just bought a boat I want to sail across the Atlantic can you tell me how to do it safely you can't tell people that. You, with grizzly bears, the whole trick is not to run and to face the bear. Hopefully not he's not that close and figure out what the bear's motivation is. The bear doesn't want to engage you any more than you want to engage it. But you don't run and, and uh, telegraph that you're afraid or that you might be on the menu uh, shortly. So uh, the main thing people do is let their fear take over Instead of saying, this is a big, angry dog, but I've got to make sure it understands that if it mixes with me, it's going to get in trouble. And, of course, we have things like bear spray now. And I've been charged by grizzlies in Alaska and used bear spray fairly successfully. And I'll tell you, everybody's afraid to some extent of bears because you have to keep their wits about you. But I don't think that's any different than and having some big, bull mastiff uh, dog run at you, you've got to decide what's going to threaten the dog. Reach for a imaginary stone or get a stick or whatever you can do.
0: So in some way, even having that fear is constructive.
1: Yes. The bear's usually uncertain as to what to do. If you're too close, it feels threatened and it'll charge, but it may uh, come out charged fast and then decide that uh, it's going to run off. They call that a bluff charge. There are a lot of people with the uh, Uh, fear because they don't know much about bears and the thing to do is go with groups of people if we're talking yellowstone with grizzlies or even black bears in rocky mountain national park if a bear is aggressive you get people together and you throw stones or sticks and and tell that animal that even though it's starving you're not going to donate any flesh that day
0: and like we've said, you went on to study bears for decades, and your field work had moved to southwest Alaska in Katmai National Park and Preserve. How did your feelings about bears shift as you worked there?
1: Well, it took a day or two. I uh, have to admit, when I came ashore first, uh, uh, I loved the camp and the wilderness setting. But the moment our plane, uh, our float plane, touched down on the beach, uh, a five or 600-pound bear was walking down the beach. And, uh, Currently, there are 60 or 70 bears that are walking around among people. But the odd thing, and and that's uh, a good bit of my book, uh, which compares behavior of bears on salmon streams, where I was doing contract work for the National Park Service. And uh, my orientation of the the project objectives were to see if uh, people are disturbing the bears away from their food on the stream and whether the numbers of people without rangers around or are at risk of injury. And it turns out that the bear culture there, they've learned to come and feed on fish. They basically ignore people, even people that do rather stupid things. And they're most frightened of other bears because there's so many of them. I'm not crazy enough to say that bears can't be dangerous. It's just that huge numbers of people both camp and stay in tents uh, in Katmai. And uh, basically, they've had 40 years without any injuries.
0: We should say that that's an unusual feature of Katmai National Park, that that is a part of the park's design, that people are camping and hiking and fishing near these bears.
1: That's a very good point. And it's a huge park, and the bears there at Brooks River uh, aren't exposed to, uh, to poaching or hunting. There's hunting all around the park by the Alaska... Uh, fish fishing Game uh, manages that. But they don't have negative experience with, with people, and so they don't avoid, and therefore they get complete access to the fish. Now, that's very important. You know, we're struggling along with about uh, 1,000 grizzly bears in the continental U.S., and they're not near the numbers that they used to be. People, the experts have estimated maybe fifty thousand grizzly bears were here before European man came in, and that's when they they play their their main role. I, I learned through our studies at uh, Brooks River in Katmai National Park that the bears are carrying huge amounts of fish and uh, feces and urine in their their bodies, dying in the forest. And they're basically fertilizing the forest. This is uh, a cottage industry among researchers now as to how how much nutrient they're taking. But it requires that the bears be in reasonable numbers, not token like we have now. If we just have enough bears to barely survive, they're not playing their role in the uh, theater of life.
0: When you were attacked in Yellowstone, grizzly bears had protected status. That was revoked in 2017, but then reinstated in 2018 by a federal judge. What do you think is needed to restore bear habitat in the lower 48?
1: Well, a better attitude toward them. And I'm against as many uh, grizzly bear conservations are of opening hunting seasons in the states or around uh, Yellowstone Park, Wyoming, Montana, Idaho, And the current federal government interpretation is once they've uh, reached the recovery number, say 500, then they've recovered and you take them off the endangered species list and the management devolves back to the states where where it should be. However, the uh, paranoia about bears and the interest in in getting another species to hunt seems to have overcome the uh, Fish and Game Department's and, of course, the ranchers don't want to see any grizzly bears, and they don't want to see wolves anywhere near their uh, cattle and sheep. Other people have a great deal of fear living in uh, grizzly country. But I ask the question, you know, if you're a true Westerner, don't you want as much of the West that was there before we uh, scrambled it up with uh, timber and dams and, and whatever else? Now, this is a values question, obviously, and some people say... Hell no, I don't want the grizzlies. I want a safe place, let my kids' uh, families go wherever they want to go camping and not have to worry about grizzly bears. And a lot of people are are like me. I've been getting all kinds, since my book came out, all kinds of people writing me saying what a a courageous thing it is to stick up to the grizzly bear after them all by one. But uh, I don't think it's so much courage as just... uh, wanting to see uh, much of the Wild West left wild.
0: Barry, thank you so much for joining us.
1: You're welcome. Nice to talk to you.
0: Barry Gilbert wrote the book One of Us, a biologist's walk among the bears. He'll speak at the Denver Museum of Nature and Science on Tuesday. Of course, Gilbert's encounters with grizzly bears have been a part of his job. Most people will never come across a grizzly or another bear. The closest known grizzlies to Colorado are in Yellowstone National Park in Wyoming. You can read about their history in our state at CPR.org as a part of Colorado Wonders. Cracking with a nuclear bomb. Fifty years ago, that's what the federal government tried to do in Colorado in an attempt to extract natural gas. CPR environmental reporter Grace Hood explores this chapter in western Colorado history and what it means today.
2: The Atomic Energy Commission set off a bomb more than a mile and a half underground east of Grand Junction. It was twice as powerful as the weapon at Hiroshima.
1: Nine, eight, seven...
2: The explosion shook rocks off cliffs.
1: Six, five, four.
2: People say it felt like an earthquake.
1: Three, two, Two,
2: one. Boom. Judy Beasley watched from eight miles away in front of her white two-story house. What it felt like was a very slow-moving tremble. It was like a flowing. The scene in the town of Parachute, which was called Grand Valley in 1969, was almost festive. The federal government briefly shut down I-70. People sold souvenirs. Many locals, like Beasley, had the afternoon off of work. We were whooping it up. Why were they so excited? People saw dollar signs. Scott Kaufman wrote a book on Project Rulison and similar experiments. The economy was slow around Parachute. There was hope that a natural gas boom could awaken the sleepy region.
1: If the Rulison test shows this gas can be extracted at a profit, it will open the way to recovery of vast gas resources not now accessible, 8 trillion cubic feet, in the Mesa Verde Formation alone.
2: So that's why the locals wanted it. For the federal government, they wanted peaceful applications for nuclear explosives developed during World War II. Project Rulison is part of a much larger government initiative called the Plowshare Program, started in the 50s. If fracking with nuclear bombs sounds odd, get a hold of these other ideas. Mountaintop mining with nukes. New roads by splitting the atom. A new harbor in Alaska? Scientists thought that sounded like a job for the atom bomb.
3: The idea of using explosives to build a harbor, for instance, in Alaska seems crazy. But they were convinced that if they put enough effort into it, they could create what they called a clean nuclear explosive. In other words, an explosive that produced virtually no radioactivity and therefore would not pose a threat to humans or flora or fauna.
2: It actually did sound crazy to some people, even at the time. Chester McQuarrie camped out with a dozen protesters for days. It wasn't known for certain when the blast would happen, but they thought they would stop it.
1: We just had to head out and and go... Find a place on the mountain as we each listen to the nearing countdown. 10, 9, 8. AEC security officers scanned the mountains for others too close to the detonation site, mainly small bands of young protesters from Denver and Boulder.
2: McCreary and his friends set off a smoke flare to let Atomic Energy Commission scientists know they were two miles from the blast zone.
1: Helicopter patrols kept them some distance from the site but still a few vowed to stay within two miles. There were men standing by the open sliding door of this large helicopter, and they were yelling at us, but with the intense noise of the helicopter, we couldn't understand a word they were saying.
2: McCurry ran away to find a clearing and ride out the blast.
1: Seven, six, five. We cleared some loose stones away and and, uh, lay down sort of head to head. Four, three... Two, one,
2: ignition. Slowly, it sounded like the loudest freight train McQuarrie had ever heard rumbling underneath. We were lifted six or eight inches in the air with a shock wave. The same future that excited townspeople in Parachute worried McQuarrie to his core. If Rulison were to prove successful, it could mean dozens more underground nuclear explosions for fracking, a huge risk. The experiment did produce some gas, and that carried a little radiation. But that was the only time radiation from Project Rulison has reached the surface. Still, 50 years later, modern-day environmentalists like Ben and Sharon Tipton, who live in nearby Battlement Mesa, worry about its lingering effects.
1: That was a fracking process.
2: Common sense is at a premium here. Yeah. The Tiptons want to see permanent monitoring set up near Rulison. The U.S. Department of Energy has tested water in the area for 47 years, but it now plans to decrease the frequency. A bigger concern, according to the Energy Department's Jelena Dayvold, is that radioactivity could permeate the geology underground and come out of new wells through natural gas as companies today drill ever closer to Rulison. You know, of course, our attention will be focused on the wells that are developed more near to the site. The government has additional safeguards to prevent the old radioactive material from reaching the surface. They limit drilling to a shallower depth than the nuclear blast. Corrine Hamilton isn't worried about radiation, even though she lives a few dozen yards from the blast site.
4: We like the views
2: It's on her private property.
4: It's documented that it is pretty clean, that there isn't any radiation coming up. Hamilton worries more
2: about trespassers. The Rulison site draws tourists who want to know something, anything, about what happened. Right now, the only way they can see the small monument to the explosion is by walking onto her land.
4: We've actually had people from Virginia, we've had people from Illinois that have come up.
2: One day, she even met a man who said his great-grandfather was a Rulison scientist.
4: When they start talking, I try not to interrupt and just
2: sit back and listen. Hamilton says she wants to collect these stories. She plans to build an interpretive sign to go next to the monument, one that can be seen from further away, and explains the complicated legacy of the larger plowshare program. Its fate was sealed by a lack of commercial success, public consciousness about radioactivity, and the will of Colorado voters. In 1974, they approved a constitutional amendment It says voters get to decide if any future nuclear device is detonated
0: in the state. I'm Grace Hood, CPR News. David Thompson has been called Michael Jordan before Michael Jordan came around. He starred for the Denver Nuggets in the late 70s and early 80s and eventually became the highest-paid player in the NBA at the time. His basketball career tanked as he struggled with cocaine, alcohol, and injuries. Years later, out of the limelight, he's found peace. Christian Clark profiled him recently for Colorado Public Radio. Christian, welcome to the program.
3: Hey, thanks for having me.
0: David Thompson was an excellent basketball player in a lot of respects. But what is he really known for?
3: I think the biggest thing is he's he's one of the all-time what-if guys. Anybody you talk to about the game... If David Thompson's career hadn't been derailed by alcohol and cocaine, I think you'd you'd hear him mentioned in the same breath as, you know, Magic Johnson, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, Larry Bird. Th- those guys from the 80s who really, you know, like vaulted professional basketball kind of to another level. I think he'd be mentioned in the same breath as those guys.
0: Tell me what he was good at as a player.
3: Um, the, the thing he was known most for was his leaping ability. His nickname was Skywalker, which is just one of the all-time coolest nicknames. Uh, He had a 44-inch vertical. Um, He tested at 42 inches as a freshman, and that got him in the Guinness Book of World Records. You know, kind of the joke about him was he could jump so high that he could snatch a quarter off the top of the backboard and and put a dime and a nickel up there.
0: (laughs) That's incredible. Where did Thompson learn to play basketball?
3: Yeah, so he, he grew up in a really rural area of North Carolina. Um, he was the youngest of 11 children, and he started to play the game on a, a dirt court behind his home. Um, I got to talk to David and his cousin, Alva Gentry, who, who played in that court and is now the head coach of the Pelicans. And, you know, the rims at first were bicycle rims that they ripped the spokes out of. It was just a dirt court. And, you know, Alvin described it to me as that, like they literally just went to the river and brought up water to like pat down the dirt to make it like a little bit hard so you can like dribble on it and all that. So yeah, pretty much just a, a makeshift court behind his home.
0: And so it was a really do-it-yourself basketball kind of court. Um, he played college ball for North Carolina State. Was he already starting to make a name for himself there?
3: Um, locally, he, he did as a freshman. I, I think there was buzz in North Carolina about him. But there wasn't national buzz about him until his sophomore year at North Carolina State. They went undefeated 27-0, and there was NCAA violations that, that, where they couldn't play in the NCAA tournament. But that's kind of when the national buzz started. And then the next year, you know, he led them to the national championship. They, they beat UCLA, which was like a huge deal back then. Um, and that was when he became kind of like a phenomenon, I guess.
0: He's also known for popularizing the alley-oop. What's the story there?
3: Yeah. <laughs> um, I, I think that's definitely one of the noteworthy parts of his career. Uh, he was in practice one day at North Carolina State as a freshman and in practice one day he was getting overplayed and he cut to the basket. And the point guard he's playing with like threw him a lob and he kind of overthrew it. Like Thompson didn't think he could get to it. So he, he just jumped, but he did get to it and he dropped it in the basket. And they kind of had this moment where they're like, oh my God, what just happened? Thompson, you know, his recollection was his coach stopped practicing was like, uh, that was pretty good. We should do that again. And and David was like, Yep, smart coach.
0: So in nineteen seventy five, David Thompson joined the Nuggets. How did he do his rookie year?
3: I came in and killed it pretty much. Uh it, it was immediate. There was not really a transition period. That was the Nuggets last year in the ABA. And they were a good team before David Thompson came there. And he kind of took them to another level. They they made the finals um and they they played Dr. J. Julius serving in the Nets in the finals that year and lost. But yeah, it was pretty immediate success. And if, if you just look at the numbers, I mean, it, it's a trajectory where, you know, you could be talking to one of the all-time greats if he's able to maintain it.
0: And Thompson, like you said, he earned this nickname Skywalker, and people have said that he was the Michael Jordan prototype. Michael Jordan even idolized him. But his performance dropped off steeply in the early to mid-80s. How did he go from a shining star in the league to losing his starting spot?
3: Yeah, I, I don't think it's just one thing. I think there are a number of factors. Um, one that you can point to, after Thompson's third season, he got handed uh, or he agreed to a huge deal, $4 million over five years. And when I talked to him, I think he he felt real pressure about being, you know, the highest paid player in the league at that time. It, it really got to him. I don't think he liked being in the public eye and, and getting that contract, you know, kind of put him even more in the public eye than he already was. And that combined with, with injuries that he sustained uh, a little bit later in his career, I think all that contributed to his cocaine use going from kind of an occasional thing to to sort of a daily habit and, and really just changing who he was.
0: And what did Thompson tell you about his spiral into substance abuse?
3: You know, I, I think the 1979-80 season was a turning point. He was dealing with uh, plantar fasciitis, um, which is, you know, an injury in your foot. And he only played in about half the games that season. And you know, from what I gathered, that's when the, the cocaine use really picked up. That's when it became a daily thing. Um, he missed team flights. He became more distant. He actually resigned as co-captain uh, in the middle of the year that year, which is just a really, really weird thing. So that's when kind of, I, I would say, the shift occurred.
0: There was a moment in his career when Thompson really got called out for his drug abuse. The Denver Post wrote an article. Can you tell me a little bit more about that?
3: Yeah. So it was 1982. Thompson was kind of out out of on his way out of town, it was understood that, you know, he's going to be on another team soon. And yeah, the Post ran a series of articles basically detailing uh, his addiction to, to cocaine. Uh, his issues became public. Um, you know, one of the details in the story, his wife actually went to his drug dealer or went to the police to try to get his drug dealer arrested. You know, it's kind of a last gas effort to, to help her husband stop using. And these are when his issues, you know, came to light. And... You know, cocaine in the NBA at that time was really widespread. Uh, In uh, 1980, there was an article that ran in the Washington Post, um, and one of the general managers for the teams, I believe is Utah Jazz, just told a reporter on the record that there's not a team in the NBA uh, where, you know, one of the players doesn't have a cocaine issue, he believed at the time.
0: Was there a moment that really ended his basketball career?
3: Yeah, there's kind of an infamous story about the death knell of his playing career He fell down the stairs at Studio 54 in New York and really shredded his knee. And, you know, late 80s, they didn't really have the medical technology or, like, the surgery you got. It wasn't as good as it is today. And so when you you did something like that to your knee, it became a lot harder to come back. And I think that, combined with the addiction, it, it was over for him at that point.
0: Studio 54, where that accident happened, was a nightclub in Manhattan. That was the last nail for his basketball career What happened next in his struggle with substance abuse?
3: Um, I think towards the mid-80s, he he hit rock bottom. He was sentenced to 180 days in jail for domestic violence, uh, shoving his wife. He got to go to a rehab center there. And I think when he went to a rehab center in 1987, he he really began reflecting and he took steps towards towards truly changing and getting sober. One of the moments that he really pointed out to me was, you know, he was in this the game room of this rehab center, and, and Dr. J Julius Irving, who he was friends with and kind of rivals with, you know, about a decade earlier, shouted him out on TV and, and just said, "David Thompson, you know, was one of the best players I ever played against." I think that was that really helped him, and I think we also have to mention his wife Kathy because, you know, she was described to me as a, about as loyal as they come. They they were separated for a period, but they never got divorced. And when David got sober, they were actually able to reconcile. And, you know, I I think they really did love each other. And she was really there for him the whole time.
0: And what did he tell you about the recovery process for his addiction?
3: You know, I I think that moment with Dr. J was really consequential. I think his wife helped him a lot. He moved back to North Carolina toward the end of the 80s. And... He was in, in the process of getting sober and he was looking for work. You know, he, he needed a job. He'd, he'd run out of money there in the 80s. And the Charlotte Hornets, kind of the hometown team, basically gave him a job in public relations. And, it, and his job was pretty simple. It was just share your story. And, you know, once I think he found work again uh, and was able to reconcile with his family, then, you know, things started to become normal again.
0: He's been sober for 30 years and you spoke with him recently. What is Thompson's life like now?
3: ordinary. And I I think that's what he likes. I mean, his days are spent, you know, going to the Y and riding the stationary bike. He's got a really old dog, a 14-year-old Shih Tzu that I think he adores. He takes it on a walk every day. Um, he hangs out with the, his grandkids. So just, just the things you would expect from a 65-year-old man.
0: And how does he reflect on his past and his career?
3: I think he has come to accept it, um, that it, it sort of led him to where he was today. I think even, you know, well into to being sober, there was some bitterness about it. You know, when he'd do public speaking, you know, he'd, he'd be pretty frank and, and tell people he was speaking to, I could have been one of the all-time greats and, and I blew my chance. And today, I I, I just think there's a, l- a little more acceptance that he's okay with everything that happened um, because it led him to where he is today and and he's happy. Thanks, Christian. Thank you.
0: Christian Clark is a sports reporter talking with us about basketball legend David Thompson. Thompson played for the Denver Nuggets and later overcame drug abuse. When we come back, a new novel set in Colorado that combines fact with fiction and an unexpected nod to Shakespeare. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. In the late 80s, the AIDS epidemic
4: started to take hold in gay neighborhoods in cities like New York, Los Angeles, and San Francisco. For these people, marijuana was a cheap, accessible way to treat the symptoms of AIDS. Little did they know that they would pave the way for more than 30 states to legalize medical marijuana today. Medical marijuana and the AIDS epidemic on the latest episode of On Something. Subscribe for free wherever you get your podcasts.
0: This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Avery Lill. Still under scrutiny are plans to move most of the Bureau of Land Management headquarters to Grand Junction and other parts of the West. CPR's Washington, D.C. reporter Caitlin Kim was at a congressional hearing this week where the Interior Department was on the defensive.
4: Acting BLM Director William Perry Penley defended the administration's plan to move the headquarters out west. He described it as a win-win as he testified in front of the House Natural Resources Committee.
1: Nothing beats being on the ground nothing beats seeing something up close and personal.
4: He reiterated all the past arguments for the move. It's important to have decision makers in the field. It will be a cost savings. He also addressed concerns about his past advocacy for the sale of public lands, which critics point to in their distrust of his motives.
3: I have never advocated the wholesale disposal or transfer of those lands.
4: Penley has written that the founding fathers did not intend for the government to own public lands long-term. But he repeatedly testified that as a member of the Trump administration, he stands behind the president and the interior secretary's position on the sale of public lands. It didn't alleviate concerns of some lawmakers that moving the BLM is the first step to weakening it. Democratic Representative Paul Tonko of New York. This is a dangerous move, one that not only disrespects federal employees, but also threatens to rid federal agencies of institutional knowledge and devoted civil servants. Robin Brown, executive director for the Grand Junction Economic Partnership, highlighted the reasons why the city should be a grand home for the BLM. She supports the move and the reasoning behind it.
0: The idea that BLM leadership shouldn't be influenced by the communities that rely on our public lands is misguided. It tells me that you don't trust people like us from rural communities to advocate for the highest and best use of our public lands.
1: It's the distrust that's centered on this administration.
4: House Natural Resources Committee Chairman Raul Grijalva of Arizona.
1: Their motivation and what is really behind the move that we are trying to get at.
4: Grijalva says that given the lack of transparency, analysis and consultations, this appears to be nothing more than a poorly veiled attempt to dismantle a federal agency. Penley says a full list of positions moving out west will be released next week. One person who won't be moving? Penley. He told the committee he'll be staying in Washington, D.C. I'm Caitlin
0: Kim, CPR News. McElmo Canyon lies in southwest Colorado, adjacent to the canyon of the Ancients National Monument and the Utah border. It's home to author Chuck Greaves, and it's the setting for his sixth novel, Church of the Graveyard Saints. The novel explores the relationships and attitudes that shape the land Chuck, welcome.
5: Thank you, Avery. It's great to be here.
0: You're not from Montezuma County. You lived in Los Angeles and you worked as a lawyer for a couple of decades, but you moved out to McElmo Canyon about seven years ago. Tell me about your ranch and vineyard that got you to move out to Colorado.
5: Well, when my wife and I left Los Angeles in 2006, we actually wanted to move to this area, to the uh, Four Corners area, and specifically to McElmo Canyon, because we had some dear friends who had bought a ranch here. But we looked around and couldn't find a place that we liked. So we ended up spending six years in Santa Fe. But we always had the idea that we wanted to end up here in McElmo Canyon. And finally, we found the perfect place, which was right across the road from our friend's ranch. And lo and behold, I was always kind of a wine aficionado. And the property we ended up buying had a vineyard. So now I I split my time between writing novels and and tending a vineyard.
0: And what does it look like out there?
5: Uh, It's beautiful red rock country. Uh, If listeners are familiar with uh, southeastern Utah, places like Canyonlands or, or Capitol Reef, McElmo Canyon is like a little slice of that kind of red rock canyon country that extends across the border into southwestern Colorado.
0: So let's talk about your book. The protagonist, Addie Decker, returns to her family's ranch after years of absence, and she quickly finds herself embroiled in conflicts about the land where her family has been ranching cattle for generations. But that ranch is also sitting on a large carbon dioxide deposit, and it turns out there are lots of opinions about what to do. Tell me about those conflicting views of land that are the center of this story.
5: Well, the canyons of the ancients' national monument. McKelma Canyon is the southern border of the monument. It is the home to the largest or densest collection of uh, archaeological ruins in the country. It's estimated there are about 30,000 ancestral Puebloan sites in the canyons of the Ancients National Monument. It also happens to sit on uh, one of the largest and purest CO2 repositories in the world, called the Bigelmo Dome. So right away you have a conflict between archaeological resources and the pristine natural beauty of the Monument area, and the extractive industries that would like to mine the CO2 in the ground there, what they do is they, they, they drill for CO2 here, and they send it in pipelines down to Texas, where they use it for secondary recovery in the oil exploration business. So they, they pump CO2 from the ground here, send it to Texas and Oklahoma, and pump it back in the ground there to uh, boost Oil production. Uh, so there's an inherent uh, tension between uh, uh, those two possible futures for the area, and that tension forms the backdrop for the story.
0: So, those very real environmental concerns and archaeological concerns really set the stage. Yeah, absolutely. And it seems like you have a lot of empathy for the different views that you are presenting in your story. You have ranchers and people extracting CO2, and you also have people who are enjoying the archaeology. Do you see yourself more in one of these than another?
5: You know, once I finished my first draft of the book and I stepped back to sort of look at what I had here, I concluded that what I had was a kind of almost Shakespearean tragedy, where you had the Capulets of resource extraction and the Montagues of environmental protection. (laughs) And that formed a backdrop uh, for what uh, is a very personal story about a love triangle, basically. And the love triangle is between Addie Decker, who's our protagonist. She's a 25-year-old young woman who grew up in the Cortez area, left thinking she'd never come back, uh, and uh, her environmental studies professor, with whom she's in a relationship She does come back to her hometown with him, and sure enough, when she gets here, her old high school boyfriend is lying in wait, if you will, and he, as it happens, works for the company that's drilling CO2 adjacent to her family's ranch. So you have this very personal story of a love triangle set against the backdrop of development versus conservation.
0: Do you think that development and conservation are really locked in this sort of Shakespearean tragedy where, of course, we know Romeo and Juliet, they both die tragically? Or is the situation so fraught in Cortez?
5: Well, I hope not. <laughs> I think as a county, Montezuma County, which is one of the poorest counties in Colorado, is going to have to make a decision here pretty soon as to which way it wants to go. And those are the issues that we explore in the book.
0: And in the story, Addie's boyfriend, Bradley, is an environmental and sustainability professor at UCLA. And you write from his perspective, Bradley was standing quite literally at ground zero in America's battle against global warming and humankind's fight for survival. Is that just something that his character believes, or is that something that you also believe about Southwest Colorado?
5: Well, you know, I think a lot of times readers mistake the words that come out of a character's mouth for the opinions of the author. In this, in this case, the book is written from four different alternating points of view. So there's four point-of-view characters. One is Addie, One is Bradley, who's the environmental studies professor, who thinks the way you just described. One is Colt, who works for the, the gas company, who thinks very differently than Bradley does. And the fourth is Addie's father, a man named Logan Decker, who's a rancher, who feels more like Colt does. He favors resource extraction. He sees it as the only hope for ranchers in his area where there's drought and there's depressed prices for beef. So very different attitudes are expressed by different characters. If you're asking me my personal opinion, I I suppose I definitely lean more toward the environmental point of view and the idea that recreation and tourism is the future of the county. But I try to express all points of view in the book, and I try to give voice to all those different uh, opinions.
0: And let's talk a little bit more about Addie, because this book really hinges on her decisions. How did her character come into being?
5: I think the, the germ of the book was this idea of coming home, the idea of going away and coming home. And I, and I experienced this personally. I mean, I, I when I turned 18, I left New York where I grew up and I went to college in California and never came home. I think a lot of young people have this idea that they want to stretch their wings and and shake off the dust of this small town and get out and and conquer the world. And I certainly felt that way when I was 18. But I had an interesting experience when I would go back to my old hometown, which was on Long Island in New York. And I thought of it as this flat, boring, barren sort of place. But when I went back, I was surprised, seeing it through fresh eyes, how beautiful it was and how green it was and what a lovely place it was. And I think sometimes you have to get away from a place to get a new perspective on that place. And that, I think, was the genesis of Addie, the idea of this, this young girl who grows up in a small town and can't wait to go to the big city and conquer the world. And then when she is forced to come back five years later, she sees her town with a different set of eyes. And, you know, the book culminates in uh, a decision that she has to make about where her loyalties lie. Do they lie with her family and and the ranch that was in her family for generations? Or do they lie with her new boyfriend or elsewhere?
0: And like you mentioned, you wrote this from several points of view. And it seems like Addie's conflicted views about land are bound up with those relationships, mostly with men. And you've got her Bradley, her father, her grandfather, her ex-boyfriend. And each of them represents a different perspective on how to use or live with the land. Tell me more about those relationships.
5: There is this notion that first love is, is, is the purest love or that the first person you fall in love with is the person you'll never forget the rest of your life. So there was an element of that in the relationship between Addie and Colt, her high school boyfriend. She has a fraught relationship with her father for a lot of reasons. Her father, who raised Addie as a single parent, was almost a smothering presence in her life. And then there's Bradley, who's this erudite, uh, accomplished, older man who, to her surprise, shows this great interest in her and sort of mentors her and represents uh, a future that she envisions for herself. And again, at the end of the book, she has to make a decision between uh, those three people and and where are they going to fit in her life going forward. And that's another part of the conflict that drives the book forward.
0: And at the climax of the book, the Montezuma militia enters the picture and it's a militarized group of ranchers and they've got demands for the federal government, like no more national monuments west of the Rockies, no more endangered species, no more retiring grazing permits. It reminds me of the Bundy standoff. Is there a part of the Montezuma County that you're aiming to characterize by including a militia?
5: Uh, not to characterize, but you know, there is that element in the, in the desert southwest. There are very different and polarized attitudes about things like public lands, cattle grazing, and property rights and water rights and things like that. And people feel very strongly about those. Uh, So yes, you know, there's the whole Bundy standoff, the Malheur standoff in Oregon, and other uh, militia type uh, activities. I use that device to sort of bring the story to a head. Addie and Bradley, their activities to try to uh, combat the expansion of oil and gas exploration in and around the canyons of the ancients causes this militia to react.
0: And I don't want to spoil the ending of the story, but Bradley's character ends up being pretty slimy. He's fighting for the environment, but he's got ulterior motives. Is this story in some way indicting the tactics people from urban areas use to champion environmental protection in rural communities?
5: I don't think that specifically. I think the point there is that people aren't necessarily what you think they are. In the case of uh, Bradley, he was maybe not what you thought he was uh, all along. And it's really Addie's realization of that that is part of her character arc.
0: And are these conversations about how to use land and what shapes the land, are they the sorts of conversations you're having with your neighbors?
5: Those issues do come up from time to time. Uh, We just went through this whole bear's ears issue across the border in Utah, where who should have access to public land, how should it be used. Uh, Those are very much front burner issues in the Four Corners. Fortunately, the Canyons of the Ancients was spared when the national monuments went under review, but Grand Staircase Escalante was shrunk considerably, and the Bears Ears was shrunk considerably. Those sort of hot-button issues inform the book, and they inform the discussions in this part of the world. People are talking about, yeah, what do we do with these places? Uh, Do we preserve them? Do we transition to a more recreation and tourism type of economy? Or do we keep relying on on the easy money uh, that comes from oil and gas exploration, despite all the negative consequences? So those are very real issues for us here in the Four Corners. And I suspect they will be for many years to come.
0: Chuck, thank you so much for joining us.
5: My pleasure, Avery. Thank you.
0: That's Chuck Joseph Greaves from McElmo Canyon in Montezuma County, author of Church of the Graveyard Saints. We spoke in May in anticipation of the book, which was just published. He held a launch party this week, and later this month he'll use the book to kick off the Four Corners One Book Regional Reading Program in Montrose and Cortez, promoting literacy and community discussion. Thanks for joining us on Colorado Matters. I'm Avery Lill. This is CPR News.